and welcome to tonight's episode of The Epic Pencil, a weekly evening of original fiction, conversations with writers, and more. I'm your host, Chris Watson. Thanks for joining me. Summer vacations can be the wellspring for wonderful memories, especially when viewed through the long lens of adulthood. It's a time of freedom, riding bikes through the neighborhood, leaving home for weeks at a time to visit grandparents or to go to summer camp reading books. So many books. I used to spend chunks of my summers on Cape Cod, where my grandparents had a little cottage tucked away down a narrow, rutted dirt road where the stars were so bright at night and we could walk to the beach, though we usually drove so we could bring all of our stuff, including the books to be read when not swimming or building fantastical constructs in the sand. My grandmother and I would make regular trips to the East Ham Library, where I would take out book after book and devour them. Mysteries, science fiction, history, I read them all. Somehow, reading during the summer, when the days were filled with adventures, made the books even more enjoyable. Parts of Phantasmagoria were inspired not so much by actual events, but rather by the idea of what summers could be, what two friends like Hattie and Shep might do with their time before they got older and needed to work and move on to more adult activities. It was also inspired by the books I read about other kids and their adventures. My vision for the Shelton's Cove series is that Hattie's narrative will be told in a series of short stories about him and his family, Shep, and other friends, including one of whom we'll meet tonight. I loved that style of episodic story, like John D. Fitzgerald's The Great Brain series, which reveals the escapades of T.D. Fitzgerald as told by his younger brother, J.D., in late 1800s Utah. But there were others that told the story of kids who I imagine might be me and their adventures. There was Bob Fulton's Amazing Soda Pop Stretcher by Jerome Beattie, The Wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet by Eleanor Cameron, Alan Mendelssohn, The Boy from Mars by Daniel Pinkwater, and one that sticks with me to this day, My Side of the Mountain by Gene Craighead George. All of these harken back to the adventures of Tom Sawyer in some fashion. All tell of adventures, and all feel like something that could have happened during summer vacation on the Cape, at summer camp, or among the tree-lined streets on which I grew up. So let's put pencil to paper and continue with Hattie's Summer in Phantasmagoria, Part 2. Quick silver sand squirted between my toes as I raced the wind across the crescent moon beach that formed part of the shoreline of Shelton's Cove. Shep charged along beside me, black hair streaming over his shoulders. Together we rampaged across the beach toward our pride and joy, the wooden sailing dinghy to which we had given the name Lancelot. The name was a product of my mother's obsession with Tennyson's Idols of the King, and the endless recitations of its flowing verse to which I had been subjected from an early age. When my parents and Mr. and Mrs. Duncan bought the dinghy for Shep and me, I insisted that it be given a suitable name to fit the adventures that it would no doubt lead us to in the summer months. Lancelot was a small, sturdy boat, no more than 15 feet long, but light and seaworthy, an ideal craft for exploring the cove. Today, our goal was Kid's Mound, a small rocky island at the southeastern end of the cove. Covered with a small but dense copse of scraggly pine trees, it was perfect for our pirate's lair, the latest in a series of adventures that had consumed the latter part of the spring and would no doubt spill over into large amounts of our summertime. Together, slipping on the wet sand and feeling bits of shell dig into our toes, 
Shep and I slid landslide into the water. After holding the dinghy while Shep clambered in and hoisted the sail, I threw myself over the gunwale and took hold of the tiller. A steady breeze blew down from the hills and we raced off toward our den of imagined iniquity. So your parents taking you to the circus tonight? asked Shep as Lancelot bounced through the chop. Yes, I crowed with delight. Mom didn't like the idea very much, maybe because she's never been to one and didn't want us to have any fun either, but my father convinced her it was okay to go. How about you? Uh Uh-huh, replied a now very damp Shep. My mother seemed more excited than Moira or me, and Pop said he wanted to see the three-breasted woman if they had one. Of course, he said that when he thought I couldn't hear, and even then Mama slapped him, though she did laugh. I guess it must be some kind of joke for them. Must be, I grunted, swinging the tiller to take the dinghy clear of a large floating log. I wonder what they have there. Did you read all of the carriages on the train when it went by yesterday? I wonder what Chong, the wild man of Borneo, is like. I thought Lorelai Luna, the flying moon goddess, was really pretty. She looked young. Yeah, but she probably isn't replied Shep. At least that's what my father said this morning when he was talking to my mother. They're just painted that way to make people look better. Conversation died off on that note as we drew closer to Kid's Mound. I sailed us to the south side, and even as we began to lose the wind in the lee of the island, I brought Lancelot's bow up onto the tiny, sandy beach nestled between the large black rocks, while Shep lowered the sail. Together, we tumbled over the sides, hauling the boat farther up the sand. Shep ran forward and tied the bow painter to a pine tree. We scrambled up the rocks and into the sanctuary of the trees. Kid's Mound, ostensibly a former landing place for the notorious pirate captain, was only several hundred feet from side to side. The dense growth of scraggly pine and the numerous outcroppings of rock and huge granite boulders made it impossible to see more than a few yards in any direction. According to local legend, It was this very detail that made it an excellent place to hide treasure. For two adolescent boys, hot with the fires of adventure and bloodlust, there could be no more suitable place to claim as our pirate's lair. It was rarely if ever visited, being a wet sail from the beach and almost a half mile from the rocky southeastern edge of the cove. I'll give you to a hundred, cried Shep. Even before he had started to count, I dashed off between the trees, rounded a boulder, and vanished from sight. I already knew where I was going to hide, and it would only take a fraction of the 100 seconds Shep was giving me. Weaving between trees and boulders, each one certain to hide a snarling pirate or Spanish conquistador ready to ambush me, I ran as fast as I could. My bare feet slipped momentarily on the side of a boulder I was scaling, but the excitement didn't let me slow down. I had plenty of time to reach my chosen lair, a small, calm pool of water, sheltered by two massive pointed stones that curved around and almost touched in the middle, but not quite. With a gap of three or four feet, it allowed water into the deep pool, but unless you swam or climbed over the guardian rocks, it was inaccessible from the open water. There were several crevices in the rocks suitable for hiding, and I knew it would take Shep quite a while to find me. Crawling on my belly under a fallen pine tree, the inlet came into view, and I stopped dead in my tracks, aghast at what I saw. There was someone in the deep pool of water, someone with long black hair that swirled about their head like a halo of pure, moonless night. A bundle of clothing was lying in a shapeless mass on the rocks, 
but I couldn't take my spellbound eyes off the figure in the water. My eyes bugged out at the sight of a pair of thin, white bloomers covering a shapely and slim behind that was revealed as the trespasser rolled over in the water and dove for the bottom. Shock, anger, embarrassment, and curiosity roared through my mind like a locomotive, all of them missing the station but the last. Try as I might, my body refused to obey my better instincts, and I remained perched on the ledge overhanging the pool. I had never seen an undressed woman before, so I think my amazement at the sight of two pale, rounded breasts was completely justifiable. I almost cried out in surprise when the swarmer popped out of the water, revealing those magical orbs. Visions of the Lady of the Lake swam through my head. Surely this sight was what had induced my father to grandly proclaim, Venus rises from the waves, when my mother was taking a bath and he didn't think I was within earshot. I was so dumbfounded by the sight in front of me now that it took some time to recover and look at the face of this unwitting exhibitionist. This time, I did cry out in surprise as I locked eyes with Moira Duncan, Shep's 15-year-old sister. She shrieked and grabbed her chemise and blouse, pulling them swiftly over her head. She scrambled across the rock, pulling on her skirt and covering the sight of her lacy undergarments. With her clothing in place, she turned to me, fury and shame in her eyes. Abruptly, I too was ashamed. I'd known Moira for almost my entire life, and now I'd embarrassed her terribly. Any joy I'd remained from those glimpses of her snowy chest was gone, snatched away by my own shame. Hatfield McLernan, what do you think you're doing spying on me? She cried. Sliding out from under the pine tree and coming to stand on the rocks, I felt my embarrassment giving way to anger. What am I doing spying on you? What are you doing on our island? Your island? She shrieked. What are you talking about? I have as much right as you to be on this island. Shep and I claimed this island for the Brotherhood of Pirates last month, I exclaimed. Brotherhood of Pirates? There's no such thing, came the sharp retort. Yes, there is, I cried. We started it last month when we claimed the island for it. Hattie McLernan, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I have every right to be here. Her voice rose several octaves as she replied. No, you don't. How, how did you get here anyway? Our boat is in the only place to land on this island, I shouted back, hoping for a stern tone, but was betrayed by a sudden crack in my treacherous voice, pitching my words up and down the scale. Stifling a laugh, Moira snapped, I swam, you nitwit. Not everyone needs a boat to get here. I like it here. I'm staying and you can't do anything about it. This was too much. Oh yeah, I shouted, my verbal rapier going limp just when I needed it most, leaving me without any form of vaguely intelligent repartee. Yes, Moira snapped back. Okay, I yelled, determined to get in the last word. Pointless in a name, but the last word nonetheless. Unfortunately, my already battered composure suffered again as Moira suddenly dissolved into a state of hysterical giggling. Stop laughing at me, I cried, my voice cracking once again. But the giggling was contagious and soon we were both sitting on the rocks, holding our aching sides. Your face, Moira said between laughs. You should have seen it when you looked into my face that first time. You looked like a mackerel on ice, eyes glazed and mouth hanging open. 
Speak for yourself, I replied, slowly regaining some measure of composure. I've never seen eyes open that wide before. Your eyes were practically falling out of your head, Moira retorted. Yeah, I guess they were, I acknowledged sheepishly. But they had a reason to, you know. A deep flush slowly rose on Moira's cheeks, and her eyes dropped to the rock. Look, I said, I'm really sorry. I won't tell anyone, especially not Shep. It'll be our secret, just between you and me. Do you promise? She asked quietly, her eyes looking at me from beneath her long black hair. In the distance, we could hear Shep calling my name and crashing through the trees. I promise, I said, cross my heart and hope to die. I realized deep down that I meant every word of it. Thanks, Hattie, Moira said quietly. It'll just be our secret. Right, and Moira, I replied, my voice very low to hide the tremor. If it means anything to you, I think you're very beautiful. Moira smiled, an act that made me feel warm and goose pimply at the same time. Thank you, Hattie. I think you're very handsome, too. And with that, Moira Duncan, a person I had strenuously tried to avoid ever since I'd learned what pests girls could be, leaned over and kissed me. Strangely enough, it wasn't the excruciatingly painful experience I had always expected. In fact, I enjoyed the sensation a great deal, and even Shep bursting into the inlet as I put my arms around his sister couldn't ruin the feeling. Later that afternoon, Lancelot's bow slid easily up on the shell-strewn beach of the cove. Together, Moira, Shep, and I hauled the dinghy above the high water mark and tied the painter to an iron ring sunk into a long, buried granite block. Moira turned away and began to walk toward town. At the top of her eyes, she turned back towards us as we furled the sail. Shep, if you breathe a word of how I got out to the island to Mama or Papa, I'll slap you so hard you'll have to spin in circles to see straight. You got that? She took a breath, turned away, but only took a step before turning back again. Hattie, I expect I'll see you tonight at the circus, she proclaimed with a nod of her head. With that, she was gone, leaving me staring after her and holding only the memory of her smile and a firm wish that time could fly like the gulls overhead and speed me on my way to the circus that evening. I turned back to the boat, only to find Shep grinning from ear to ear, a sly, conniving grin of the sort I had last seen over the winter when we booby-trapped Skeeter Rummel's sled on Mulvaney Hill. She'll see you at the circus tonight, he hooted. Why's that, Hattie? I think I know. Suddenly he began running down the beach, crowing at the top of his voice. Hattie's got a girlfriend! Hattie's got a girlfriend! Hattie's got a... Abruptly, he stopped so he could concentrate all of his energy on staying at least two feet beyond my grasp as I raced after him. Though in truth, only part of me wanted him to be silent. The other part, the larger of the two, wondered if he was right. This concludes part two. The Epic Pencil will return next week as we discover the wonders of Professor Julius T. Sinkbottom's magnificent traveling menagerie and performing phantasmagoria as seen through Hattie's eyes. Thanks very much for joining me and taking some time to listen. And until we read again next week, 
Please enjoy a great book or two, and remember to support your local independent booksellers. The content of The Epic Pencil and Phantasmagoria are copyright 2020 by Christopher Watson.